following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Have you ever wondered what it might have been like to be alive at the, the birth of Christianity? In those first few years and few decades, I just talked about how our friend Josh is an old vine artisan person. There's a few of you in the room, um, one more today than, than normal perhaps, who have, have been with Artisan for so long. You, know, you maybe were around when, when things first started. Others of you came later to the game, and we love you almost as much. Um, no. We love you even more. No. We love you exactly the same. But um, it made me think about how, how it must have been to be alive when Christianity was first born, when... Uh, Everything was fresh and new and confusing. Imagine what it might have been like to be one of the first Christians, but maybe even more than that, imagine what it would be like to be an unbeliever at the time of Christianity's founding. To be a, uh, a Jew who had not converted to Christianity, or maybe even more of an outsider, what might it have been to be like a, a pagan person or a secular humanist. They had those even then. Um, at the time that Christianity began to, to get traction and take root. You probably heard, would hear a lot about it if you're living in the, the Roman Empire. And I bet that if you were an outsider to the faith, your predisposition would be to think negatively about it. Because that's human nature, isn't it? Anything that's other than us, anything that's different from us, we think is wrong because, well, it's not, it's not us, which means it's not perfect, like we are. I imagine that for, for people in that, that time and place, the Christians must have seemed to be like the Scientologists seem to be to us, right? Like, imagine if your friend became a Scientologist. How weird would that be? One of the people I follow on Twitter um, made this, he's a very outspoken atheist, and he said, the gift of Scientology is that it makes all you other religious people realize what BS you sound like from the outside. <laughs> Which uh, is maybe a little, little heavy on the snark, but is probably ought to be something we should take to heart as people of faith. <laughs> if we don't sound any more coherent than Scientology, that's, that's problematic. Anyway... One of the things you would certainly have heard about the new Christians is that they were incestuous cannibals. You heard me right. The early Christians were reputed to be incestuous cannibals. This is not a joke. The early Christians talked constantly about brotherly love. Sisterly love. And so that seemed to people who were outside the loop to sound like incest. And the other thing that the Christians talked constantly about was eating the body and drinking the blood of their Messiah. Which to us is just like, sure, we do that every week. (laughs) Who doesn't eat the body and drink the blood of Jesus? But if you're outside the loop, how weird that must have sounded. These nutty Christians 
as they first came to be known in Antioch, not only are they constantly talking about loving their brothers and sisters, but they're talking about eating Jesus. Remember the guy they crucified? They eat him and drink his blood. Really? No, I'm telling you, I was there when they came out of the room. They were still talking about it. It is very bizarre. Now, we don't really exactly talk about communion that way anymore. Usually what I say is John Wesley's wonderful term, that that communion is the food for your souls, which is a much prettier way of talking about eating and drinking Jesus, isn't it? But as it turns out, the early Christians were saying nothing that was any more visceral or shocking than what Jesus himself had said a year before his crucifixion. And that's where we're landing today as we finish up this little run through the book of John at the end of John chapter 6. Jesus is going to say some really incredible things at the end of this this dialogue that he has with the people. And just when you think he's said the most alarming thing he could say, he says something even more alarming. And it's all for Jesus because he has this policy where he just does not suffer fools. I, I talk about this passage a lot. Um, I, and this moment that we're about to discuss, I talk about it a lot because it's one of my favorite moments where Jesus just like cuts loose thousands of followers in a matter of about five minutes because he said something really weird and they're all like, I gotta go. By the way, the text on the screen right now is John 6, 14 through 6. That's, I think, was the, f- <laughs> the text for the second week of the series. And um, you now see my workflow. Uh, <laughs> I changed certain things on the slides from week to week, and I haven't changed that one in a couple of weeks. Anyway, it's probably good because I've changed the text and made it bigger each time I've come back to this uh, in the last several days. So, um, well, I'll, t- I'll explain that in a second. But this whole chapter in the book of John, chapter 6, is about Jesus feeding the 5,000. We started with that miracle um, four weeks ago. Jesus took the... the few loaves of bread and the fish, and he fed, it, fed 5,000 people with it miraculously. The, the bread and the fish multiplied, and there was so much left over that it filled 12 baskets. And then what it says is that when he saw that the people were going to take him by force and make him their king, which we talked about how weird that is, but uh, he just disappeared. He went Kaiser Sose on them and was just gone. And they chase him down, and they're like, hey, where did you go? And then he basically starts this long discourse, questioning their motivation, not really questioning it, but explaining to them in, in all the many ways that it's, that it's wrong and messed up. And, and he drives toward this moment at the end where suddenly they're just like, we got to go. I'm out of here. This is too much for me. So what we're going to do is read a fairly long section here. We've gone through about 40 verses of John in the last few weeks. We're going to read 30 more of them today. And I apologize for that. This is the wrong book. Um, I apologize for that, uh, but it's, there's just no good way to cut up this section of Scripture. Uh, and so the reality is here that we're not going to be able to dig into everything that Jesus says in this little passage, which isn't really that little anyway, but um, there's no way to cover it all unless we wanted to do four more weeks in John, which don't tempt me, I will do that. I'm not going to do that. There's other things we have to get to. So what that means is that um, there's going to be a lot more for you in this passage than I'm going to be able to, to explain 
or kind of dig deeper into and so forth, and that's fine. That's okay. Remember last week we did the Lectio Divina thing, and part of the reason that I do that is because I want you to know that you have access to the, to the Scriptures without a mediator, without me explaining everything to you or some pastor teaching you exactly what you're supposed to believe and so forth. Um, so it's okay that, that you will receive things from this reading that, that have nothing to do with what I'm going to talk about. I, actually, I, I, I sort of like that. So let me read this to you. It's on page 868 if you're in a red Bible. If you brought your own, you are on your own. John 6, 41 through 71. Then the Jews began to complain about him because he said, and I just need to stop really quickly, I'm sorry. Um, sometimes I read this quick and I'm like, that sounds really bad because we don't use the word Jews that way. Uh, I kind of used it a minute ago and I cringed a little bit. Um, you remember I talked about this ages ago in John that this is just the way that, that John describes the, mostly the Jewish authorities, but kind of the Jewish establishment as well. He just says the Jews. And that's not really, a, that's not really an okay thing to say about a group. You can't like talk about the Jews. That's what Mel Gibson does, and that's not good. Um, I just, I, I mean, I, I'm sorry to be flippant about that, but some people are maybe hearing this phrase for the first time, and they're like, wow, the Bible is, the Christians are really anti-Semitic. That is not the case at all. It's just simply the way John describes this group of, of uh, people. Um, there, he was Jewish himself. So, Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, the Jews began to complain about him because he had said, I'm the bread that, come, that came down from heaven. They were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not complain among yourselves. No one can come to me unless drawn by the father who sent me, and I will raise that person up on the last day. It is written in the prophet's and they shall all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. I was going to stop there today. I decided I wanted to keep going. That was going to be a pretty good cliffhanger, though. The Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. People are starting to back away here. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate, and they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. And I was going to stop there for a little while, but I want to keep going because what happens, the, sort of one of the most interesting points and in sort of the finishing of what's happening in this story is the next several verses. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? I love this, this, the subtlety and the dryness that sometimes the biblical authors use. <laughs> This teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? 
I just, that's not how I would have said it, but okay. But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But among you there are some who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the first who were the ones that did not believe and who was the one who would betray him. And he said, For this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, and here it seems to imply that there's only twelve people left from the 5,012 that were there. Do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He was speaking of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, for he, though one of the twelve, was going to betray him. All right. The rather lengthy word of God. Thanks be to God. Do you see what I mean now about how it sounded weird when the early Christians were talking about communion because it had sounded weird when Jesus had talked about communion? And I do think that's what Jesus is talking about here, if you ask me. He's talking about eating his body and blood. And when you eat his body and blood, it becomes part of your body and goes into your bloodstream. And again, it makes me want to imagine what it'd be like to be an early Christian. One of the people who'd been walking around in person with Jesus. And then suddenly he's dead, and then suddenly he's raised, and then suddenly he's ascended, and you're trying to put all these pieces together and make sense of it. And you're saying, man, it sure seems like that Last Supper, hey, that's a good name, that we had with him, it seems like that was important for us to remember, and oh, I'm putting it together now. Do you remember when he did the thing the year before, when he had done that thing with the bread, do you remember what he said afterward? Yes, of course I remember. We lost like 5,000 people that day. The, the offerings were terrible the next Sunday. Yeah, that was a weird thing to say. But it kind of makes sense now, doesn't it, in light of that Last Supper. Maybe we should capitalize Last Supper and make a note. There are so many things that Jesus says here that could be applied to the understanding of communion that it would almost be hard to know where to start and it would definitely be hard to know where to stop. But what was maybe the most interesting thing about this is that Jesus is actually talking about himself as food. He says the word true, true food and true drink. Transubstantiation, anybody? <laughs> You know what that word is, the Roman Catholic belief that in the, the bread and the wine of communion, they, they actually literally become Jesus' body and blood. You can't see it, but it's actually true that that's what it is. 
Uh, and then Luther came and changed the prefix and said, no, it's, it's really Jesus, but it's not really Jesus. And then the, the rest of the Protestants were like, well, maybe it's just a symbol. And, and it just kind of, <laughs> there's all this range of different belief about what actually happens in communion. But whatever actually happens in communion, and by the way, I think that that argument is a distraction, um, like so many other religious arguments. But what you can't deny is that Jesus talked about his body as food and his blood as a drink. And he says something that I want to I kind of sit with for a few minutes. He says in verse 56, this really, I, I found myself reading, reading over it really fast just now when I read it, even though I knew it was the thing I wanted to sit on for a minute. Verse 56, he says, Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. And I want to stop and visit with that word abide for just a little while. It's not a word that most of us use. It's an English word that we know, but if I were to take a poll as to how many of you used the word abide in the last week, I imagine we'd get zero or one or two hands. It's just not a very common word, yet we do sort of know what it means. Let me ask you this. If, if I were to ask you to give me a synonym for the word abide, what would it be? Just shout it out, anybody. Dwell? Huh? Live? Was there another one that shouted? Somebody sh- Stay with? Tolerate? Tolerate? <laughs> that's right. I just can't abide this anymore. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's fun. That's fun etymology. Um, become one? You are quite the theologian, my friend. <laughs> that's good. Um, that's not where I'm going with it, but that's good. I think, I think most of us probably would come up with what what several people shouted at once, which is dwell or live with, right? You abide in your abode. In Greek, this word is meno, and it happens, not minnow, like somebody from Pennsylvania would say minnow, the little fish, but meno, um, M-E-N and a long O. And it happens to be one of John's favorite words. In fact, um, of all the occurrences in the New Testament of this particular Greek word, John's gospel and John's letter contain um, almost 60% of them. He says the word abide a lot. Uh, the word meno, a lot. Um, it's not always translated as abide, though. So if you go through the book of John, you'd see a bunch of uses, uses of the word abide. But you would also see some of the other English translations of meno, which include things like um, stay or remain or wait for or with. So, this word really means all of those things. And I'd like to just kind of do a little bit of a thought experiment with this word. And this statement, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. What does that mean? Well, in one sense, it does mean that that you live in Jesus and that he lives in you. That's the most common English understanding of the word abide, and I think it applies here. And and it's probably where we goofy evangelicals get, get our whole thing about inviting Jesus into your heart to live. Right? Speaking of things that make no sense to people who are outside the circle. 
It makes total sense to those of us who have been in the church a long time, right? How many of you invited Jesus to live in your heart when you were little? (laughs) I did. And I think that's an important understanding. Now, some of you in the room uh, do not in any sense live with Jesus from day to day. And we are glad you're here. Take your time. But I do want you to know that it is my belief that you are missing out on one of the most important realities in all of eternity, which is the the knowledge and presence of Jesus in your life. Uh, Yes, I might even go so far as to use that that silly little metaphor of, of Jesus being alive in your heart. If that's not your reality, it certainly doesn't mean you can't be here with us. We love having you with us. But I would be derelict in my duty if I didn't call you to that and say to you that, that absent that, everything falls apart eventually. But those other senses of the word abide are important too. Stay. Remain. Wait. And there are a lot of you in the room, probably more in this group than in the first group, who need to hear this business of abiding in Jesus and be convicted about the fact that you are impatient, unwilling to wait. You are inconstant, unable to stay. You are spiritually unfocused. There is no meadow in your soul. And so for you, when I invite you to communion each week, to to eat the body and drink the blood of Jesus so that you will abide in Him, it should be a reminder that, that you are actually willing yourself to stay with Him. That you are actually, at least for this moment and this day, waiting That you are remaining with Jesus despite the fact that your faith is wavering, that you're going through trying times, that you find it hard to commit whatever it might be for yourself. In that sense of the word abide, communion ought to serve as a reminder. But wait. Because even more important than that, and I would say infinitely more important than that, is the fact, the promise, that in communion, in the eating and drinking of Jesus, that Jesus is abiding in you. Jesus is remaining you. Jesus is staying with you. Jesus is waiting with you. Because ultimately, it is not about an act of your own will. Acts of your own will get a bad rap in the Protestant church where we like justification by faith alone. But they are still important. You You have to get up off your seat and come to Him. Literally at the table and then metaphorically in all the other areas of life where you need to do that. Those acts of will do matter but they are not enough to get you there and they are not enough to keep you there and they are not ultimately 
the point. You abiding in Jesus is nothing more or less than the corollary and result of Him abiding with you. You stay with Him because He's staying with you. You remain with Him because He remains with you. You are able to wait with Him because He waits with you. I'm reminded of that beautiful passage in the book of Romans. Romans 8, 38 and 39, where Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Has He covered all the bases yet? None of it will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. And nothing includes you. (laughs) And your impatience. And your inconstancy. Your lack of focus. And your utter unwillingness to wait with Him. To abide in Him. Your complete inability to muster up the faith. To stick around. Even that... Even your profound failings as followers of Jesus. And please help me help you include myself when I say you are in that moment. Even your profound failings as people of faith are not enough to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what it means when Jesus says, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood will abide in me and I in them. So every time you come to communion, every time you take His body into your blood and His blood into your bloodstream by the miracles of digestion and the mystery of the presence of Christ in the sacraments, every time you do that, it should be a reminder that He waits for you. That He stays with you. That He remains in you. He abides Jesus abides. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you great thanks. We are so thankful that even when we are utter failures at the the acts of will that are required to abide in you, that You, Jesus, abide in us. We confess to You the times in our own life when we have said the equivalent of what those 5,000 disciples said, this is a difficult teaching. Who can accept it? And we have walked away. Give us, we pray, O Lord, the grace to have the strength to say, as Peter said, Where else would we go but to You? We want to abide in You and we most desperately want 
for you to abide in us. And we pray now that that mystery would become a reality at your table. That whatever might be happening, literally or metaphorically or spiritually or anywhere in between, that we would know your presence is real in the bread and the wine. That we would, in taking it into ourselves, be given your grace. Would be nourished in our souls. Would be united to each other and to you. As we partake of this great mystery of faith, we thank you and we place our trust in you and only you, Jesus. Amen. Well, we will continue to worship God together in song as we take communion. Our table is open, and this invitation is so wide that I couldn't possibly express it to you. Jesus calls to you and invites you to come and eat and drink and abide. Uh, If you would like to respond positively to that, you should be walking as soon as that first chord is struck. Take and eat. See that the Lord is good. Let's keep worshiping Him together. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.